Welcome to our Here in Chapel sermon for July 5th. By the way, happy Canada Day, eh? Our sermon is Forgetting the Flesh, Pressing on for the Prize. First section, Faulty Anchors, Pedigree and Performance. In Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul cautions followers of Jesus against trusting in their own strength. Verse 3, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Trusting in your own strength can lead to a letdown. Back in 1968, my folks decided to modify their aging farmhouse by tearing off the back woodshed, renovating the kitchen, and adding a garage entryway and laundry room slash mudroom for changing when they had come in from the barn. One day when the builders weren't around as an inquisitive 12-year-old, I decided it would be fun to crawl around in the framing of the partly built structure. All went well until I decided I could just sort of swing down from the trusses and land athletically on the plywood floor. Well, turns out my preteen biceps weren't quite as strong as I thought. I landed heavily on my knees with my forearms out to brace myself while my head kept on going to make resounding contact with the floorboards. The skin on my forehead split open and blood started gushing out. My mother came quickly and set her rather dazed youngest son over under a tree until my semi-concussion cleared and we decided a bandage would do, no stitches required. For decades, a small scar would remain marking the spot my head made contact. It was a close enough call for me and a warning not to overestimate my abilities in the future. In verses 1 to 6 of chapter 3, Paul's focus is helping the church to be aware of what they're putting their confidence in. What's anchoring their life? What is it that they might boast about, rejoice in, or glory in? Is it their pedigree and their performance? If so, those things will fade away and let them down. There's something far better to anchor our life in, to put our confidence in. The issue arose because, as in the church at Galatia, legalistic Jews were on the prowl, considering themselves Christian, but teaching that people had to keep the Old Testament dietary and ceremonial laws. Yet the Apostle Peter had received a vision from the Lord not to call unclean what God called clean. It seemed the Lord was accepting even non-Jews who believed in Jesus to be saved, along with Jewish Christians, quite apart from observing dietary laws and keeping traditional religious rituals. In verse 2, there's a stern warning to be on the alert for these Judaizers. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. NRSB captures the force of the original with its threefold repetition of alarm. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. Hmm. Do you think he views this as a serious threat? Dogs is strong language, referring to hungry animals who prowled the streets looking for scraps back in those days. But it shows the low regard Paul had for these tricksters who would teach things contrary to the gospel. These he termed cutters, mutilators, like the misled Baal worshippers of Elijah's time who gashed themselves in their religious frenzy of worship meant to catch the attention of their gods. At our home on Highway 21, we've had numerous encounters with coyotes who are keen to make a supper out of our livestock. You hear them howling in the woods, sense them prowling just out of sight to pick off some vulnerable bird or animal. They've earned a rather bad name for themselves where we are. 
I can imagine Paul feeling something similar for the dogs who preyed on other people, trying to win them over back into the trap of legalistic religion. To the Galatians, Paul said such false teachers are trying to burden them by a yoke of slavery, Galatians 5.1, to attempt to be justified by laws to fall away from grace, 5.4. Paul states in Galatians 5.10b, The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. As for motive, Galatians 6.13b, They want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. Each new legalistic Christian represented yet another little trophy in a Judaizer's display cabinet. For Paul, it boils down to one main issue. Are we going to boast in Christ or boast in the flesh? Note how he starts this section, Philippians 3.1a. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. The term translated rejoice here means to be glad, rejoice exceedingly to boast with exultant joy. Note one chapter later in Philippians 4.4, 4, he repeats, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say, rejoice. If the Lord Jesus is our boast, our joy, our prize, we won't get waylaid or distracted by lesser idols. The contrast or juxtaposition is very noticeable in verse 3. For it is we who are the circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. What's he mean by the flesh? Be careful, for because in verse 2, mutilators of the flesh, it's directed towards the physical body. But here it's something else, akin to other parts in the New Testament that are pointing to our sinful human nature. John MacArthur comments, by flesh, Paul is referring to man's unredeemed humanness, his own ability and achievements apart from God. What gives you confidence on a purely human level? What might you be tempted to mount on your brag board? What are the natural abilities you default to trusting in? For example, Paul lists his own merits in verses 4 to 6, how if he really wanted to, he could prove to be more Jewish than the Judaizers. Even though I, too, have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Note by flesh, then, he's not talking about his physical body, but having top marks for religion, circumcised on the right day, not as an adult like Gentile converts, born a Jew, born of one of the elite tribes. Benjamin stayed loyal to the Davidic line when the ten northern tribes rebelled. It was Benjamin that, together with Judah, formed the southern kingdom. Paul not only had Jewish parents who kept the Hebrew language even while raising their family in a foreign city. Paul was a Pharisee, the strictest sect that believed the whole Hebrew Bible, unlike the Sadducees. And Paul was also the son of a Pharisee. Besides his pedigree or background, there's also his performance. He persecuted the church with zeal tracking down these supposed heretics like a one-man vigilante band. He says he was faultless in terms of legalistic righteousness. 
each day checking off mentally more than 300 laws a serious Jew is supposed to keep. Legalistic religion tries to build its own bridge of self-made righteousness to get across the gulf of human sinfulness and connect with God. But its efforts and sacrifices will never be enough. It always falls short. You never quite make it. When it came to ticking off all the checkboxes, there is no one better at it than Paul. But the load of this work's righteousness was overwhelming. Is there anything you've been secretly trusting in, putting your confidence in, patting yourself on the back about as if God owes you one? Better confess it and reevaluate what you're inwardly boasting about. That's to fall away from grace. Christ can be of no help to those who rely on their own efforts. Next section. Recognize the treasure. Relinquish the write-off. We Canadians had some grace this year in that we didn't have to file our income tax within the usual deadlines. There was an extension on a grace period. Painful as taxes can be, there can be an occasional upside. You get to write off some expenses. That doesn't mean you get back all the money you spent on them, but at least some of that value can be applied against the gross profit you made in your business, reducing your net amount payable. In this next section, verses 7 to 11, Paul resorts to some accounting-type terms to explain his new attitude, his revised valuation of things compared to what the circumcision party felt was important. Listen for profit and loss and gain in verses 7 to 8. He says, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ. When in an accounting ledger or checkbook register, say, you might typically have at least three columns, credit, debit, and balance. Under credit, you put the positives, what's in your favor. The debits are the takeaways, expenses, costs. Hopefully when you're done, the adding and subtracting, you're left still with something in the balance column. Is your net a profit or a loss? For the Judaizers, the circumcision party, all those things Paul had just listed, right race, right tribe, right sect, right performance, would all have gone in the credit column. But Paul, through his conversion experience, has discovered something so fantastic, so revolutionary, that it has completely turned his accounting book upside down. The credits are now debits. The profit he thought he was accumulating, the brownie points, the trophies in his case, and certificates on his brag board, all pale in comparison to his new experience. New Living Translation, uh, verses 7 and 8, says, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. What is it that's the real treasure of surpassing greatness? Knowing Jesus, having a relationship with him. Not a book knowledge or head knowledge, knowing facts about him, but a lived experience through faith and the Holy Spirit. That didn't come from keeping the law, wasn't earned by works obedience, observing endless dietary uh, rituals. Paul just had to trust Jesus to be who he said he was. That turned Paul's goals and values in life completely upside down. Verse 8b. 
for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. The term behind rubbish can also mean dung, scraps, what's flung to the dogs. Friday morning, I unloaded a small trailer of it from the livestock pens into the manure pile. It had been sitting in the heat for several days, so it's rather ripe. That, Paul declares, is where I place all those things I used to be so proud of, my accomplishments and abilities, compared to the wonderful privilege of gaining Jesus as my Savior. Paul considers them a write-off, as it were, of no value anymore. He's trying to highlight the supreme value of Christ. Paul forsook all, as it were, traded it in for a better deal. Now he had no longer a righteousness of his own, making that came from the law, but a true, verse 9, righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. What's important to Paul now? Competing with other graduates from the class of esteemed and well-known teacher Gamaliel? No, he's given that up completely. We see his goal, his heartbeat, his fervent passion in verses 10 and 11. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. I want to know Christ. We already saw that in verse 8, an experiential living relationship and the power of his resurrection. So far, so good. Who can't use more strength? Later in 4.13, Paul would announce, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. But then we come to the third clause in Paul's wants, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. What? How could anyone possibly want that? Isn't it crazy to be desirous of suffering? Paul knows that suffering is coming. Right back at the time of his conversion, Jesus had explained to Ananias about why he was calling Saul slash Paul, Acts 9, 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Paul knows it's coming, but likely his emphasis is on the first part, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, the partnership, koinonia, having something in common. Paul knows Jesus can relate to what he's having to endure. It's part of what welds the relationship so closely. Beatings, imprisonments, stonings, shipwrecks. Jesus was using all of it to bring Paul closer to himself, drawing Paul to rely on Christ for strength, not on his own resources. And so would come about the next clause, becoming like him in his death. Paul was already living a cruciform lifestyle. When folks looked at Paul, they could see Jesus. In how he reacted, they could see hints of how Jesus would have reacted. Seeing his character change in this gracious way bolstered Paul's assurance of heaven, eventually experiencing the resurrection from the dead. Paul delves a little deeper into this phrase, sharing Christ's sufferings aspect. In Colossians 1.24, it says, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul took what was happening to him as an extension of Jesus' own afflictions, and there was purpose to it, for the sake of the church, Christ's body. 
Other people were being helped through his hardship. Many more were hearing good news because Paul bravely went to the hard places, the spots where he encountered enemies and resistance. Next section. Up periscope, lift your sights higher. Anybody seen one of those submarine movies where the captain says, up periscope, and this big shaft with an optical piece on it would rise up and peek out above the surface of the water so he could look around? In verses 12 to 14, Paul fills us in on what he's got his own sights fixed on, the, the goal he's pressing on towards despite all the sufferings and unexpected setbacks. Note how relational it is. Verse 12, he says, Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. The phrase take hold of can mean to make one's own possession, to call it mine. We talk about this or that grabbing us, absorbing all our attention. Has Jesus taken hold of you? Have you released all you have and are into his care and leading? Are there other idols vying for your attention, absorbing your interest? Jesus in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount said, Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Someone has described purity as willing just one thing. Recall the glass of water in today's children's object lesson. The food coloring made the clear water green and impure. Is there anything polluting your spiritual life, getting in the way of your connection with God, making your vision cloudy and unclear? What's your one thing? What's your chief goal in life? Is it anything to do with Jesus and his kingdom? Paul discloses to us his one thing in verses 13 and 14. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Forgetting what's behind. To Paul, it was all loss, right off. He relinquished it all to Jesus, all those merits of which he was once so proud. He chose to press on toward the goal. The term for goal here is scopos, from which we get scope, as in periscope, telescope, microscope, the distant mark looked at. What's the one thing you have in view? What are you zoomed in on? Is it getting rich, being comfortable, one of our favorite Canadian buzzwords? Suffering, such as Paul was familiar with, is not comfortable. Are you focused solely on your career, becoming a faultless Pharisee of Pharisees? Paul was top of his class, but found that ladder was leaning against the wrong wall and gave it all up. Are you training your eyes on becoming famous, making a name for yourself? As we saw last week in Philippians 2, God gave the crucified one the name that is above every name. 2.9 No, Paul's got his sights drilled in on a different goal altogether. 3.14 I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. God's upward call in Jesus. Once you make knowing Jesus top priority, getting your focus fixed solidly on him, 
everything else will fall into place. If a certain goal doesn't happen, probably it wasn't necessary in the first place. Maybe it's for someone else in the body to look after. Knowing him brings peace and puts everything else into perspective. The author of the letter to the Hebrews counsels us to set our sights or get our scope set this way, Hebrews 12.2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The prize is worth it. Next section, Moving Mountains in Faith. One person who knew the value of keeping his eyes on God, who can do the impossible, was R.G. Letourneau. The website giantsforgod.com tells his story. R.G. Letourneau is perhaps the most inspiring Christian inventor, businessman, and entrepreneur the world has ever seen. A sixth grade dropout, Robert Gilmore, or R.G. Letourneau, went on to become the leading earth-moving machinery manufacturer of his day with plants on four continents, more than 300 patents to his name, and major contributions to road construction and heavy equipment that forever changed the world. Most importantly, his contribution to the advancement of the gospel ranks him among the greatest Christian businessmen of all time. Famous for living on 10% of his income and giving 90% to the spread of the gospel, the Turno exemplified what a Christian businessman should be. R.G. Letourneau dropped out of school and began working in an iron foundry at the age of 14 in the year 1901. Numerous tradesmen jobs later, he discovered a passion for machinery, initially as an auto mechanic and later as the manufacturer of the largest earth-moving equipment on the planet. At the age of 28, he returned from a period with the Navy, serving our country in World War I to a car dealership, of which he was half-owner that was steeped in debt due to a partner who took to drinking. Paterno removed himself from the business with $5,000 in debt. The year is 1915. Ouch. Jobless and beyond broke, he jumped at the opportunity to level some land for a wealthy rancher. R.G. claimed that this experience was the most satisfying job he had ever held. Paterno slowly expanded to larger and larger land leveling contracts. He continually underbid his competitors to win jobs and would scramble to invent machines to speed up the work and keep him from going broke. R.G. Letourneau was among the first road construction contractors to introduce machinery to moving earth. The year was 1919, and as a Christian, he felt the tug to be doing more for God. He went to his pastor, Reverend Duvall, for advice. R.G. thought that anyone who was wholly committed to Christ had to become a pastor or a missionary to truly fulfill the Great Commission. After deep prayer with this pastor, R.G. Letourneau was shocked to hear Reverend Duvall say the words that guided him for the rest of his life. God needs businessmen, too. This was a revelation to R.G. He immediately began to consider his business to be in partnership with God. I might interject. Remember Paul in verse 10, the sharing or partnering in his sufferings. We continue. Still, R.G. Letourneau was puzzled as to why God would choose him to be his businessman, especially when at the age of 40 in the year 1927, a big construction job went bad and put him $100,000 in debt. But as R.G. remarked later, after seeing what God could do to restore business and life, he uses the weak to confound the mighty. The following story highlights a miracle that God performed while R.G. faithfully served God, not man. 
the surety company that had backed RG on the construction job that posted the $100,000 loss was going to see to it that RG paid them back every penny owed. So on Letourneau's next job, the surety company demanded RG work on Sundays or else they would foreclose on his business, his house, everything. Since RG's business partner was God, he gave the problem to God to solve. The owner of the surety company, Mr. Hall, boarded a train to officially shut Letourneau down, but upon arrival to the job site the next day, something miraculous occurred. The surety man had a change of heart and allowed RG to continue. Although the job was completed without working on Sundays, RG was still deep in debt. He was able to buy some time with his creditors by committing to improve his financial reporting. The surety company installed an accountant named Mr. Frost to rein in the books. What Mr. Frost found was worse than he had originally expected. Meanwhile, R.G. had skipped his yearly missions pledge the year before, so he was committed to making good with the Lord. He told Mr. Frost that he had pledged $5,000 to his church for missions. Mr. Frost couldn't believe it. R.G. was so far behind, even thinking of donating to the Lord was out of the question. Mr. Frost didn't realize who R.G. was partners in business with. Unbelievably, the business managed to stay afloat and the mission's commitment was paid in full that year. Then his business hit a breakthrough. For years, R.G. had sold the machinery he had built for himself when he got a little behind financially. Although he still considered himself first and foremost a road construction contractor, the selling of his earth-moving equipment inventions had been a profitable sideline for him. R.G.'s attorney hinted at the idea of solving his financial woes by going full force into the manufacturing business, rather than rolling the dice on the ups and downs of big construction jobs. R.G. then turned his complete focus to the manufacturing of his machinery inventions. After that, his financial woes were a thing of the past. One last quote by Letourneau illustrates how firmly he saw God as his business partner. He maintained, the question is not how much of my money I give to God, but rather how much of God's money I keep for myself. When we recognize Jesus as Lord and let him be in charge, he changes our values and goals to be in tune with his. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us, dying for us, forgiving us, and taking hold of us. We want to keep in view the goal of an eternal relationship with you in heaven. Help us become more aware of how that starts right here and now. Turn our lives around as you did so dramatically for Paul. Grant us strength for the hardships we'll encounter here. Through them, we want to get to know you better and be transformed ever more closely into your likeness. Mighty God, precious Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.